This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today is the executive director of the New York Gilbert and Sullivan Players, a professional repertory company that keeps the legacy of Gilbert and Sullivan alive through performance and education. He is the producer of the all-new critically acclaimed production of The Mikado. He is also a fabulous singer and actor that enjoys starring roles in HMS Pinafore, The Pirates of Penzance, and The Mikado. Coming up is my conversation with swashbuckling soloist David Wannan. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Hey, Pat, thank you for having me. David, it is fantastic to have you. You have such a unique niche in our business because of the focus being on Gilbert and Sutherland. Sure. It's funny. You got to pick something, right? (laughs) And a lot of us, as you know yourself, a lot of us can do different stuff, but when it comes to actually earning your supper and getting out there and doing something in the world, it kind of helps to specialize and become an expert at one thing and, and actually represent that and, and really get into that. I think a lot of businesses are like that, and, and the arts are no different in some ways. So the niche actually helps, I think, in, in the long run of the career. Let's give a new person to Gilbert and Sullivan the sort of background and context to their being noted Victorian era partnership, creating these operettas. And since you're sort of the go-to guy for Gilbert and Sullivan, I'll let you do the entree. It's really cool, actually. We did this for a bunch of students at Lafayette College last year and introduced complete new people to Gilbert and Sullivan through a full semester college course. So I've had a little bit of that recently, and I'll share a little bit of that. So Gilbert and Sullivan were two Englishmen who came together out of a kind of brat pack, if you will, in the late 1800s, right around 1870. They came together. They were part of sort of this bohemian artist, writer, composer crew. The writer side was made up of a bunch of comedians, a bunch of comics and satirical writers who were doing a lot of commenting on sort of the Victorian morals of the day and and the Victorian lifestyle, poking some holes in it and sort of inventing to some extent a popular satirical discourse that was showing up in magazines and this is when you you know you can imagine there was no tv so people were buying these little magazines all through london and that was their entertainment it was like the topic of conversation at lunch so gilbert was one of those writers and sullivan on the on the other hand was a much more well-known sort of celebrity composer he was england's great hope to have a to have a composer be of the top rank level they got introduced through various things and they wrote their first collaboration together thespis 
which was like a Christmas entertainment. Very interestingly enough, it, it was born out of the desire to have wholesome theater, comedic theater represented in Victorian times because a lot of theater at that time was burlesque and what they would call sort of French disrepute. It was ill repute. It would have been a little spicy, but also very kind of like not, not scripted and improvisational, but also over the top and kind of gaudy and bawdy. Yeah. And so they came together writing a more sophisticated kind of theater. Gilbert was really into really the cutting edge. This is before Stanislavski. He had mentored with Thomas Robertson and other people who really were into acting and naturalism and bringing that out on the stage. They used to call it stage management back then, but what they really meant was direction. They came together and brought this huge compositional talent and this huge satirical wit and put the two together and they and they blew up and their first big hit was HMS Pinafore in 1878 that led to a run of 10 or 11 more operas after that that really they became the most famous thing in theater for that time and really lasted as one of the most popular things in musical theater all the way through the 20th century and they were known for their topsy turvy style their outrageous plots that would be completely deadpan delivered in manner but they worked out it to logical consequences based on accepting this sort of wild premises that they set up. So, hundred percent. Anybody who has never seen one of these, they they probably have heard some of the songs, especially because they're such wild, fast patter songs that they're hard not to be attracted to. I think of the piano composer Tommy Lehrer who used to do a lot of great wordplay. And so I was always attracted to the comic edge of it, but also they had a big impact on the development of musical theater because of their work. This is a forerunner to what was the Broadway musical. You sort of hit it all on the head right there. You have the beginnings of sitcom comedy with Gilbert's writing, and you have the beginnings of musical theater with the collaboration of the two. So Sullivan was an expert at setting Gilbert's lyrics and really brought a lot of warmth to Gilbert's wit, which was kind of icy cold. Mm -hmm. And the combination of those two influenced pretty much every musical theater writer that came after them, especially big fans like the Gershwins, Cole Porter, Rodgers and Hammerstein, Lerner and Lowe. They all traced themselves back to Gilbert. They were all huge fans. Johnny Mercer said, we all come from Gilbert. You got a lot of that in there. And they were together for some 25 years. One of the things I read that was fascinating to me is they were brought together by a producer who built them a theater. Like in 1881, they were presenting the joint works of Gilbert and Sullivan as a series of operas where this was the place you went to see this kind of entertainment, which as a creator of content, that would have been a unbelievably delicious thing to have waiting when you wrote something that it was going to be presented and tickets were going to be sold and you didn't have to worry about that. It feels like that's what that producer offered them was a way to really continue creating and always have a home the way a Neil Simon did on Broadway or something where people look forward to the next version of a show that was written specifically by these guys. Absolutely. So that producer was Doily Cart, which became known as the Doily Cart Opera Company uh, that his son and his daughter and his grandchildren took over. It was a family business for a hundred years, basically. And yes, Doily Cart saw the investment potential, saw the potential for revenue and income, 
formed a partnership with Gilbert and Sullivan and began that theater, the Savoy Theater, which still stands today. You can go to the Savoy Hotel and all the rooms are all named after Gilbert and Sullivan shows. Okay. And it was a commercial enterprise from the start. I tell presenters this all the time. It was it was commercial entertainment. This was not artsy fartsy stuff. This was this was to sell tickets just like Broadway, to employ people full time, to make profit. And it was so for a long time into the 20th century. Also, just of note, very interesting, that theater and its premiere was the first time audiences ever went into a building that was lit entirely by the electric light. So it was the first theater in the world lit by, first indoor space lit by the electric light. And it's just got great history in that way. It, they were known for their effects, their special effects, which were all new at the time. And that was Patience, that the, the debut of Patience was the first show that was in that theater. Pretty neat history. And those also, didn't they become known as Savoy Operas, basically? The Savoy Operas, that's right. They, in, in total, had 14 shows together, I believe. 13 surviving, 14 total. 13 surviving. So yeah. was it that first one that is never done anymore, the Christmas one? Yeah, Thespis just completely vanished. Nobody knows where it is. <laughs> but Trial by Jury was the very first surviving one. It's like a 45-minute romp. It's still a lot of fun. We still perform it. The Sorcerer came after that, HMS Pinafore after that, and it just goes on and on with Pirates of Penzance being the only one that was premiered in New York City on Broadway December 31st, 1879 on New Year's Eve. Pretty cool. Yeah, it is cool. And to me, it's interesting to hear you talk about it because you have to be as much historian as you are producer and entertainer. So while I know you to be an extraordinary singer and actor and really able to bring all this magic to the part, oftentimes you're asked to set the tone for what's happening and also try and be true to maybe what the intent was. Exactly. Some of our shows, we get to actually talk to the audience a little bit. And we, we do that kind of Victorian context as well as just the character and the themes and the comedy context of each of each number. You talked about the, the topsy-turvy aspect. I just wanted to make one comment about that, which is that it really is reflective. Some people say, oh, you know, they all wrap up the same way. They're all kind of, you know, topsy-turvy and absurd. But it was actually reflective of Gilbert's outlook on life, his philosophy. He has that kind of life is absurd thing, and you can't take it too seriously or else it will it will pass you by or or you will grip too hard on it and that philosophy comes out in in every show and every piece that they wrote together well that but that's no different than Larry David right. writing some absurd sitcom where he's at the center of some selfish action and it bites him in the butt he's always falling on his own sword that he you know a trap he set for himself so i mean again i think that what was gilbert's initials ws gilbert yeah that his being a dramatist was very much a sense of having a storytelling as well as a sense of humor. So the puzzle would work out. And that's, I think what I like about them is that they don't not to diss a show like Mamma Mia, but it was built on ABBA songs and they didn't know what to do. Now they have a song with another dad, add another dad. Like there's suddenly three dads. Like it makes no sense as a story. Now I'm not saying the audience doesn't wrap up the last 10 minutes of the show singing ABBA songs. And forget that the show was this unusual thing, but it makes, yeah, no sense at all. But in theirs, if you accept the leap of faith of something that they, a premise they put out, then it does take you on a certain journey. It does, 100%. Let me ask, this is a little bit more a contemporary question about it. 
So you're mentioning the dates, and you know we're over a hundred years ago that these were being presented. So you are faced with updating these in some way, and also facing some political correctness or those kinds of things. And I know that a few years ago you you really faced that with a with a tour. So tell me a little bit about how you're sustaining their legacy, but honoring where we are today in terms of things that we should be saying and doing. Sure. So this, I think, goes across many surviving art forms, not only from the 19th century, but especially from the 20th century. A lot of the problematic stuff actually comes after Gilbert and Sullivan's lifetimes, and it comes from all the stuff that happened in the 20th century, including World War One, World War Two, especially. So it's just very interesting context there that it can be the layering on of time that actually takes a piece of art that was created from one intent and packs on a lot of layer of appropriation and, and problematic cultural stuff. So Gilbert escaped a lot of problematic stuff of his era because he was so absurdist and because he was writing so much about universal human foibles, excess and pride and selfishness as you talk. He loved selfishness as a as a theme. When Sir Joseph comes out and sings about I never thought for thinking for myself at all, and that's how he rose to be the ruler of the Queen's Navy. Well we can we can relate to lots of politicians who don't think for themselves and they always vote at their party's call. I mean that just that that never gets old. It never gets tiring. However, especially in one of his operas, The Mikado, Gilbert took something. He was coming out of Patience, or at least a couple operas away from Patience. Patience really dug into the aesthetic movement, which a lot of people don't know. But you can relate to it because the aesthetic movement was a crazy fad in 1860s through 80s London. And everybody was into China. Everybody was into floral patterns. Everybody was into poetry that had a lot of fluff to it. And, and the more floral and elegant it could be, the better. People filled their Victorian homes with beautiful pottery and china and painting and drapery from Grecian. A lot of classicism, a lot of Greek and Roman classicism. He satirized that in the opera Patience. Well, the natural follow-up to that was the extension of that aestheticism with a fascination with all things Japanese. In fact, that's mm -hmm. a line from Patience. Japan had just opened up its borders in, I believe, the 1860s, 1850s to the Western world and started sharing its culture with the Western world, created a huge craze, a huge interest. He, writing for a Caucasian repertory company, the Doily Card Opera Company, he created a story set in Japan in a fictional town of Titipu. He named the characters off of nursery rhymes and little shops and places around London that he could find. He named one character Peep Bo, which is a, a reverse of Bo Peep. A lot of the times people like to think that Gilbert was making these really offensive names. He wasn't. He was using Pish Tosh, became Pish Tush, and lots of silly uh, things like that, in, in line with all of his absurdist stuff that he had been done doing before. And he created a satire of Victorian life and positions and greed and politics and anxiety and all these great things. In some ways, it's really his most developed piece to that time. In fact, Sullivan had asked him that he would no longer write or set 
a musical composition to one of Gilbert's topsy-turvy magic lozenge stories. And instead, he wanted a story of human probability and interest. Interesting. Yeah, and Gilbert found that. Sullivan got what he wanted through Gilbert getting inspired by this setting. And this story, to some extent, is popularized by the movie Topsy Turvy in 1999 by Mike Lee, which is a great, great film. I love it. Other people, people have different opinions, but I love it. I think most of your listeners would love it. It tells the story pretty well. It, it combines a few things that aren't historically completely accurate, but as all films do. But those actors are great. And the 100%. environment and the notion of, oh, this is based on real dudes and real time. Yeah. So Gilbert brought in Japanese people, artisans who were actually at the Knightsbury's exhibition in London at the time to work on rehearsals and coach the actors. Again, I, uh, as I said, he was very into naturalistic and lifelike mimetic type theater, which was new for the time. And he was pretty committed to that. He was a real stickler. He would direct every single performer on stage very critically and very thoroughly, which was also different. The role of director really hadn't been established yet. He was a huge innovator in that, in that way. That was not seen at the time as particularly offensive. Different time, different place, different ideas about what it meant for white actors to dress in the kimonos that were being showed at the exhibit at the time in London. Different concepts of cultural mixing, basically. But cut forward 140 years of all sorts of stuff including representation of the Asian American community and lots of offensive stereotyping. Frankly, I think World War II had a great deal to do with it and the attitudes that rose out of Japanese and American relationships during that time. Everywhere from the 1970s and Breakfast at Tiffany's with Mickey Rooney's character and, and all sorts of examples of stereotyping of the Asian American community. Right, which we agree is not appropriate, right? We agree that that was... 100%. It's amazing that it took so long. I'll just speak to the theatrical community. Really open up its eyes to wake up to that to some extent. You also have the question of representation on stage, which is a little different, and casting, which was a big deal, especially in shows like Miss Saigon, when they were casting famous British actors to be the lead roles, and or King and I was a big example, where you have actual Asian stories being portrayed by white people. So you combine all these elements, and in the 90s, it started coming up, and then really in the 2000s, even we were getting the occasional wake-up call from communities around the United States when we would play the Mikado. The, the pat answer was always, well, the Mikado's not really about the Japanese. It's about England and Victorian values and human universal things. And by the way, that's a convenient way for us to ignore yes. the change. That's an example of white privilege. Certainly an example of the privilege that was shown by the Gilbert and Sullivan community resting on that laurel that Gilbert himself said, this, this show has nothing to do with the Japanese because he had to answer questions about it in his lifetime. Eventually, a Seattle company produced the show, got a lot of feedback from the Asian American community out there. It had made national news. This is 2014. When a year later, when we tried to bring our, we rotate the, the big three, Pirates, Pinafore, and the Mikado, every couple of few years, and we, it was our turn to bring back the Mikado, we formed a committee. We talked about it. We tried to make a few changes. We took some pictures. We put out our brochure and online, and the firestorm hit us pretty hard. Because at least we had been thinking about it, and I was on the 
on one end of the spectrum of, of the arguments, we were ready to at least pivot. And we were working with NYU Skirball at the time, the venue and NYU. So we were in conversations with the leadership at NYU, certainly the leadership of the venue, uh, Skirball Performing Arts Center. And we, we made a decision pretty quick as a board to cancel the Mikado that December and to come back with the Pirates of Penzance. And my press guy called me that day and said, I have an interview with Richard Louis on MSNBC tonight. And by the way, I was on tour. <laughs> I actually remember seeing this interview where you were standing in front of a brick wall that almost looked like there was a firing squad facing you. But yeah, <laughs> but, but I can imagine you're caught in that moment culturally where you're, yeah. you're at a tipping point about how are you going to respond? I think I had eyeliner on for the pirate King, which I was about to go on and do literally like in my dressing room and walked out with my laptop. Luckily I had just gotten my new MacBook pro back in 2015 and it had a strong enough connection that it made for a decent interview. Pretty crazy. And I went on national news and I went out on a limb without any board approval. And I said, we're going to create a new Mikado and it's going to be going to eliminate the stereotyping and it'll be bold in concept and do it. So that's just a little bit of the backstory for your listeners. But in the end, what we did was we did kind of a Wizard of Oz treatment. We set it where it's definitely positioned where it's Gilbert's imagination. It's a dream. So you go down, he gets bonked on the head, hanging up the Japanese samurai sword that he's become fascinated with, and you go down the rabbit hole, and he brings his Victorian world into an imaginary Japan. So the costumes are not supposed to be authentic Japanese. They are clearly Victorian, but they have elements of fantasy, and they're set against an authentic backdrop that actually we had an Asian-American scenic designer produce for us. We had an Asian-American director working with us who's actually a wonderful actor and writer and creator and producer. Kelvin Moon Lowe is his name. Just got off of Beetlejuice on Broadway. Wonderful, wonderful guy, wonderful collaborator and colleague. We had a committee that worked on the costuming and feedback and, and positioning of the whole piece. Our own Kathleen Burke, who is Asian-American herself, worked on that committee and was crucial to moving the piece forward with us. She also plays Katashaw in our production of Mikado, both the old one and the new one, and really seen us through this whole experience. It has really good perspective that she imparts on, on all of our audiences and when we talk about the piece in front of students and things. It was definitely an experience. It did really well. The, the critics loved it. The Asian-American community, most importantly, really came out in support of the production on both coasts. We, we toured it to the Seattle area. We toured it to the Midwest. We're touring it this year to Florida and North Carolina. So very proud of it. You can't ever please anyone. And a lot of the nostalgic Gilbert and Sullivan fans miss the traditional production, as that maybe can be expected. There's some trade-offs there. And to most of us who really dug into it, it's still the story of the Mikado. All the characters are there. The music's all there. Right. You have to make trade-offs when you do this kind of thing. But in the end, it was a bold choice, and we stuck with it, and we've been touring it ever since. Well, let me applaud you, one, for stopping to take the time to evolve with the times. But also, in a way, we're collaborating with these 100-year-old artists yeah. to make it relevant. And Shakespeare is around because people are interpreting his material and presenting it in other ways. So right. I guess I would now just turn my lens to, is there some specific things for the performers 
in delivering Gilbert and Sullivan material the way there is with Shakespeare. Iamic pentameter makes a big difference of whether you can understand it or not if the actor knows what they're doing. And I know that there's great classic comic turns. There's the sort of patter baritone that sings a, a really fast, funny thing. So when you take a mouthful like that, like what do you got to do to prepare for that kind of quick silver tongue singing? We have two currently with the, the company, David Macaluso and James Mills, both who play roles with us. Um, and they're experts at this. A lot of it is incredible diction skills, incredible communication skills. You have to really own it in your eyes and stay ahead of, of it in order for the audience to come along with you. Mm. It's also just some of the best written stuff. I mean, Gilbert was really shining here. So again, like the ruler of the Queen's Navy by, by Sir Joseph Porter, that material stands out and hooks the audience in very early. The modern major general and his song where he talks about that he's an expert on all these different things except military knowledge, and yet he's a modern major general, really gets to the, like, the essence of what of Gilbert and Sullivan is. And I think it's, a lot of it is practice, diction, slowing it down enough that it's comprehensible, but pushing that to the edge of where it's exciting. Occasionally, I have to patter as well. I've, I've done the colonel and patience and others. So actually, I, I have a little bit more than some in terms of the, the roles that I play. I've done some myself. So yeah. By the way, you're a great interpreter of songs. One thing that impresses me is your ability to communicate, whatever the lyric is, you know, that you're really connecting with the audience in an engaged way. So if you were giving some musical theater person or somebody coming into an audition for Gilbert and Sullivan, what is your Jedi mind trick that connects the dots between the piece of content you're asked to present and making it work that moment that you're auditioning? That's a great observation. And we do masterclasses all around the country when we tour on this very subject. So you talked about it. It's the connection. This is real acting stuff. So acting through singing is just as much of a craft as acting without singing. You know a lot about that. Well, by the way, I, I don't know how to sing. but uh, <laughs> No, but you know a lot about acting. Yeah. The craft of singing acting is a lot about making it personal and finding a personal connection in the song yourself. The example that I use is if you're about to go off to college and you're about to go into the world and you're auditioning for these schools that could change your life by accepting you into one of their programs, that can be substituted be your meaning behind a song of a musical theater piece where the character is singing about starting their journey or becoming a, an adult for the first time or fall, falling in love for the first mm -hmm. time. So finding a connection that is personal is incredibly important. That's for the internal side. And for there's an external technique as well, which is kind of about using points of focus in the room and telling a story by painting a picture so that your old life is over here on stage left and making mm. sure that, that that vision is really clear. Maybe somebody who was holding you down, whether it was a parent or a teacher or something like that, your journey is in the middle that you're singing about and then your what your aspirations are over on stage right. That kind of timelining and using focal points in the room we is incredibly important too. So using those two things, substituting to make things incredibly juicy and personal for yourself, but also using external focal points to help communicate and tell a story, let the people see what you're seeing is a big, big deal. The thing that fascinates me about 
the Gilbert and Sullivan repertory company is that you're not going out doing a one person show here. Like I am. Yeah. Right. It's a quick jump on a plane, jump off a plane. You're sometimes dealing with 30, 40, 50 people on tour. 45. Yeah. 45. All right. So tell me this. Yeah. How do you manage this company from a rehearsal and a touring standpoint where all the gears are turning all the time? Like uh, clearly you've got people who are understudying each other's roles. So you've got enough people that there's coverage if there's a problem. But isn't it a logistical crazy maker to be sure that a town doesn't drop out in the middle and, you know, leave you putting up 45 people in a hotel? Yes. Yes to all that. <laughs> and I'm, I'm literally dealing with that today. All right. So tell me, <laughs> tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. Because I'd like the listener to understand the logistics, not what's on stage, but to deal with the big machinery that you've got. Yeah. So a couple parts to that question. The first one was about coverage of roles and that kind of thing, especially since the pandemic. Obviously, that has been a huge issue. We are about to go on tour for almost two and a half, three months now. We've already done one leg of it. That is our first tour back, really, since the pandemic. We will be in 25 cities across 15 states. You better believe that we are thinking about ways in which the show can go on at all costs. So that means that we have pretty much double cast all the roles of each show. There are a few exceptions, but we even have contingency plans for people to step in and that kind of thing. So double casting is hugely important as a repertory company. It also is good politics. It helps keep the most people engaged because artists want to have that outlet of doing roles and that kind of thing. So a double casting allows two people to enjoy that creative process. And it provides some insurance for if somebody gets sick on the road, somebody can step in. The second part of your question is very interesting. I'm dealing with that a lot right now. And it's, it's, it's stressful. It really is. When you're moving 45 people on a road, doing these one night shows in different towns, it really relies upon five or six shows per week routed and locked in mm -hmm. tightly routed as we joke about, but that, that is, that is the truth. It really has to right. be. Not, not like Hawaii and Alaska. Those, <laughs> those don't right. route well together. Right. <laughs> no. So we're actors equity, which is the, the professional union of stage actors by those guidelines and, and restrictions. We have to be within six hours of driving from a venue to the next one. So that means you really have to do a lot of mapping, a lot of geography on Google Maps, and a lot of reaching out and finger crossing and hoping that it all comes together. And it really is like an arch where one keystone of the arch, if it gets removed, can crumble the whole thing. Mm. So each, each tour is built organically from a start of three or four presenters in a row. Yeah. Usually, or maybe three out of four days or four out of five days is about the most I will be flexible with. Right. And then you satellite out from cities six hours. Yeah. That's right. Then it, then it starts building out from there. And then you add to that the inflationary pressure that we've all been feeling. You can imagine with a company of 45, that's a lot of fuel, a lot of bus, a lot of truck, a lot of flights, a lot of hotels, a lot of vendors that are outside of the arts that don't care that you're on tour. <laughs> Yeah. They their prices are have gone up and ticket prices have not to match that. So therefore presenters fees haven't really risen that much. And because of that there's a big squeeze on touring. And there there have been companies that 
or bigger companies, opera companies that have stopped touring because of the those kinds of pressures. So far, we've been managing, and we have a very lean and mean machine, and I put a lot of work into it, and the presenting community is really supportive, and there's a nice vibe out there with us and the presenting community. I'm not going to lie, it's tough. It's a lot of logistics and economic considerations that go into making sure we can just cover our costs. Just as a curiosity, there was a big shuttered venue operators grant from the federal government over the last few years to help with the pandemic, help get all the artists and companies and producers, agents and managers through the pandemic. And we received a good, a nice grant from that. And our board of directors sort of paid that forward into this year's touring to cover some of the costs on the road so that we would be supporting touring a bit. About 10% of our costs are supported with that grant this year. And that's allowing us to get out on the road so extensively. And that all ties to your original podcast, you know, your creativity and captivity and sort of how we've come back. Well, and I will say the support, of course, is critical. But one of the things you're actually exposing for everyone is why the ticket price is what it is. And in your case... I think people understand what they're paying for, right? In in a touring opera or certain things, it's sometimes when you have two people on stage and it's 125 bucks and you go, wait a minute, there's almost no scenery, you know? I mean, I mean so, you know, they're getting their money's worth if they see a, a show with this kind of cast and this kind of scenery and everybody's on the move. It's pretty hard to bring that right into people's hometowns. You're right, and and that's our advantage is that we have a 17-piece orchestra on the road with us. And very few things in the performing arts touring market have that. We have a big set and and 23 actors on stage in full costume. So yeah, the 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 value proposition is there. I think it's when they say that the arts industry has changed. It is interesting that 20 years ago we were getting the same fees as we are now. And I'm not exactly sure how that all gets explained, other than Netflix and Prime Video were invented and it's easier to stay home and watch a $3 movie. That just in general, less funding maybe at the state, national level for presenting, all those things combined have kept the ticket prices down, which in terms have sort of locked in the fees. And the presenting community tries to basically pay you the same amount that they paid you last time and it's a real ass to get a to get a raise and it does mean they got to raise the ticket price so in the middleman's not paying the price it's the ticket buyer that's paying the price right but at whatever it costs so i feel like audiences appreciates the sense of being at a live event and gathering greater than they realized how much they missed that and that's everything from a singer songwriter to a stand-up comic to a full-fledged broadway show you take for granted that contagious experience of community that you're having in a theater that you don't get on Netflix on your phone or watching on an airline on your computer. It's not the same to have your headphones on and be laughing to yourself. So I think feel, I don't feel like that's going to go away. I do think that, that we are all forced to evolve and things like big dance companies and things like that are unfortunately on the forefront of how can we keep them in business if people aren't yes. going out or, or jazz groups or something where it's a unquestionably amazing art. But if the attendance isn't there, the presenter starts to turn to country music or they start to turn to something else that might be where the more popular ticket is. 100%. Yeah, that's a tricky one. I just want to change the subject to the fact that several years ago, 
I was inspired by a change you made in your life. It was a lifestyle change of creativity, which was you announced to me in a hotel in New York, you know what? I'm going to go off into the Appalachian Mountains and build a yurt. I'm going to live with my family in a yurt. And the word alone continues to make me laugh. I know that it's a a real thing. (laughs) I saw the building of it. I see how beautiful it is. I see the countryside. But that's a giant change from a touring performer, which you continue to do. But what was the biggest change once you began to become yurt builder guy? (laughs) I guess a little bit of context is, is probably in order that we were living in the Bronx, my family and I, we had a house in Riverdale. We've had a real strong desire to allow our older kids and our, our son Cole to grow up in with some more space in a more supportive environment than New York City. And we also had been hiking the Appalachian Trail for about three, four years at the time and really fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. And it was the combination of those two things that my wife started googling land near the Appalachian Trail and found that only about an hour and a half north of New York City you can be pretty much right on the trail we took a look at this piece of land it was absolutely gorgeous the whole Hudson Valley for those who really haven't experienced it is a beautiful thing it's just gorgeous I mean they call it the the bottomlands which really are the valleys that are on the hills, like on the downward slopes of the hills, where all this nutrient-rich soil has been there for hundreds and hundreds of years, supporting farmlands and and that kind of thing. And it's just created a really lush, beautiful environment. And we found a piece of land. And we went out on a limb and made the decision quickly and bought the land. And then we were like, okay, what are we going to build on it? Well, we're going to build a house, and we're going to move, and we're going to really do the thing. And there was a bit of pressure, though, that we felt that we didn't want to take years building ah. a traditional stick, stick-built house. Mm-hmm. It can be that way. Like the three little pigs had that one kind? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they can get costly and they can get long in terms of, you know, if you design something from scratch and everything. We found this company. We had also played around with the small house movement, the tiny house movement, we had seen yurts out in Colorado where they're the real membrane canvas, membrane structures with the lattice work that basically are a big tent that some people can live in out west that they actually zone for you and stuff. And so our initial idea was to set up a yurt while the house was being built on the land, live on the land next to the house being built, and then all would be happy. Well, you get up to New York State, and they're like, no, 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 you can't do that. So we said, all right. What can we do? So we thought about the prefab thing. And lo and behold, we combined the two ideas. We found a company called Smiling Woods Yurts out in Seattle. And they build these beautiful houses that come in a kit. I see. And they get put on a foundation, a real custom foundation. And we built a true house. And they even had a designing architect work for us that actually ended up becoming super critical for our build. And he designed the inside of the structure completely custom. And he put two yurts together with a custom breezeway in between. And we had a at a home in about nine months. It was pretty crazy. Oh, that's impressive. And also, didn't you find that your focus being on lifestyle and being near the trail completely alleviated all the other random tensions of the city? 
didn't it inform your art and inform your touring and everything else to have a place you were coming home to that felt so personal? Yes. I would say the whole experience of both living out here and the time on the Appalachian Trail itself, over 1,300 miles of the trail we've hiked. Nature is good for you. It's good for you when you're going through hard times. It's good for you when you're seeking creativity, tapping into something that's bigger than yourself and that's been here long before you were here and will be here long after you're gone is a super healthy thing to do. There's been lots of studies on it. They've looked at people's brains while they go out in nature and where what parts light up and all that kind of thing. So definitely we got a lot of that, a lot of that juice certainly informs the idea of endurance too. Being an artist is, a, is an endurance endeavor. Mm. Being out on the road, going from town to town, doing the show over and over again, using your voice, all that I think was influenced by the perspective of getting closer to nature for sure. Yeah. I enjoyed watching the building on Facebook or other places where I saw everything from just gathering firewood and splitting yep. it and putting in a driveway and getting water to the property. All of those things you had to do take us back to the core survival skills of deciding what's important at what time versus yeah. when you kind of carry the habits of, I guess, what society expects of you. And in terms of what do you do now, you're at this stage in your life. So it's kind of nice to just take that back and say, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm passionate about at this moment, which you do in performance. And certainly your company does in terms of the repertoire, what's, what's relevant this year. What do we want to do? You're a fantastic mentor to a lot of people in the arts. I know that you were the past president of the Napalma organization. What does Napalma stand for? North American Performing Arts Managers and Agents. So it really right. is, and it really is inclusive of self-repped artists like you and you and me, where you represent or produce your own stuff or your company's stuff. And it's, it basically represents all the people who bring touring performing arts products, shows, pieces to market, to those who might present them. And that's a, been a good mastermind group and certainly people learning from each other's victories and challenges. Those that don't know, there are organizations out there like you're not alone in this right. crazy world of trying to produce or manage or be an agent because there are people who have faced just everything you have at that point. Yeah. I'm grateful that you invested the time today to share more information. I know people can find out more about the New York Gilbert and Sullivan players by going to nygasp.org and they can see titles and Yep, touring calendar as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I would say get out and experience it. If you've never seen it before, it's going to blow your mind in terms of production and the experience of the performers. David, you take the stage yourself in many of those in various roles. And I always think you're an amazing guy to watch on stage. Thanks very much, Pat. This has been a lot of fun. I'll see you out there on the road on the boards, buddy. All right. Thanks very much. We'll wrap this episode up with David Wannan sharing a smattering of patter from Gilbert and Sullivan's comic opera, Ruddigore. If I had been so lucky as to have a steady brother who could talk to me as we are talking now to one another, who could give me good advice when he discovered I was hurting, which is just a very favor, which I knew I am pathetic. My existence would have made a rather interesting ill, and I might have lived and died a very decent in the winter. This particularly rapid, unintelligible powder isn't generally heard, and if it is, it doesn't matter. 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 This particularly rapid, unintelligible powder isn't generally heard, and if it is, it doesn't matter. This particularly rapid, unintelligible powder isn't generally heard, and if it is, it doesn't matter.
Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just two dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. You're called a